here we are now, with episode number seven of our series, You Are the Chosen One. So we're up to Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. This is the fourth book in our series. So we're about halfway. We meet about halfway in this book. And this book begins somewhere totally different to the places we've begun all the previous books. All the previous books up to now have begun with Harry in his house with the Dursleys. We're in the world of the Dursleys. And this book begins in a totally different world. It begins in the magic world. That's where the setting is. And it's a haunted house. It's a dark house. And we find out that this is the old riddle house, which is the house of the parents of the Dark Lord Voldemort. And it's a very tense scene. It's a very tense setting to begin ourselves with because it's got everything on edge and it's totally different to what we're expecting and this indicates to us that well we're in for something very different this novel because up until now the story has sort of been it sort of revolved around Harry and Harry's coming into this magical world it's like how do we how do we see the magical world from from the from the muggle world from the muggle side from someone who's ignorant and yet in this first chapter of this book we begin in the depths of the muggle world oh sorry not the muggle world the magic world and it's not even the it's not even the depths of like there's a lot of magic around it's the depths in the sense that it's the it's the dark lord it's the real it's the real pu- just pure evil and we get this insight into the other side the opposite side and what's happening is well wormtail is there which is one of these sneaky sort of snarly characters he's a very he's sort of like the he's the rodent sort of character and he's taking care of Voldemort. And Voldemort is very weak. Very weak. It's like he's sick. It's like he's got some sort of terminal disease. Some terrible disease. And there's this interaction going back and forth between them. And Wormtail is sort of cowering before him and and sort of praising him and helping him, but also really scared and disgusted by him. It's almost like he's he's repulsed by this Lord, but also drawn to him. And one of the characteristics of the Dark Lord is that he can actually read people's minds. He actually knows what Wormtail's thinking. And he even says to Wormtail, I know you hate me. And Wormtail is there saying, no, my lord, no, it is my honor to serve you. And this 
mismatch of power and care is a complete reversal of the mother and the child. And that's where this series began. The series began with the mother and the child, and the mother was murdered. And a baby is completely helpless. A baby is completely entwined in its mother's love. And it's not a matter of power. We don't say that an adult has power over their baby. No, power doesn't come into it. Power is not a word that is useful for describing that dynamic, that relationship. And it's a tender relationship. A mother needs to be soft. Another mother needs to be sensitive. And a mother needs to be very in tuned with her baby's needs, with her baby's feelings. And the mother needs to trust her intuition that she can tune into the baby's needs. And what we see in a reversal of that is, well, well, this actually does happen in real life. This is when the, the parent is very, very old. So if you reverse a baby, what's the opposite of a baby? Well, that is someone who's very, very old, someone who's nearing the end of their life. And if you reverse a parent, well, then you have the child. And if you have the carer, well, as a, ch- as a baby, the parent is the carer. The parent is the one that's giving the things that need to be given because of the dependence on them by someone else. Whereas in old age, it's actually the child. It's your younger, it's your children that take care of you. And and this is, of course, broadly speaking, it's different for every culture. But in many cultures, in many cultures around the world, the child becomes the carer of the adult. And this can happen in old age, or it can happen with terminal illness when someone gets cancer. And that's when things really get difficult. Things get really hard. And in many ways, the truth of goodness and evil come out in that scenario. The truth of how you really are inside comes out. Now, in the case of a baby, the baby doesn't have much choice but to love the mother. Most children do begin life loving their their mothers. Whereas in the case of the elderly, well, that's very different. And we see it all here. All this is within this one scene between Wormtail and Voldemort. Because Voldemort, well... Well, you can ask ourselves this. Who has the power? Who has the power in this situation? Because really, we don't know much about what a, a magician is, what a, what a wizard really is, and what they're capable of. And we know that at this stage, well, Voldemort's weak. So he hasn't, he hasn't got a body. And I think he's portrayed in, portrayed in the movie, sort of like a baby. 
sort of like this 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 withering sort of almost like a, a an unborn sort of skeleton so he's very weak physically and yet somehow he's able to command the power over this character this rodent like character of wormtail and wormtail's obviously got a lot of conflictions within him a lot of darkness within him he's got a lot of fear within him because on the one hand wormtail is drawn to this dark lord he's drawn to his power and on the other hand he's very repulsed by him he's very scared by him and you could say well why didn't why doesn't wormtail run away and that that is actually one of the conversation topics that comes up because wormtail was hiding he spent years not as a human being in human being form but as a rat in rat form and he was just living with some random wizard family as a rat as their pet and that was his way of hiding that was his way of running away from the dark lord and the dark lord saying well why didn't you come to help me you betrayed me and the, and pedigrew's answer is well no i was waiting for the right time i am here now and look, voldemort well he can't really argue with that like what what would voldemort do if he was to kill wormtail because at this stage voldemort only has one person by his side well he's he's also got the snake i think the snake is part of this scene and that comes into it but voldemort really he he really is helpless and this is this is what happens i mean what happens when someone who is really powerful and truly evil is totally helpless well he uses everything he's got within his power to control the the person that is taking care of him and if you're caring for your parents or you're caring for a someone who's sick then how they deal with their vulnerability and their dependence will say a lot about their power and their sense of goodness because it can be that well those that are being taken care of can open up to a sense of very deep gratitude and they can become very vulnerable and they can return back to innocence they can return back to their purity and of course i would never wish disease on anyone i would never want anyone to have these sorts of sicknesses and i wish all the best for people in old age and it's very much possible to live in old age vibrantly it's possible to live in old age with celebration with happiness with joy and with activity this idea that old age comes to a dying or a, or a turning cold or a or or a what should we say a dissipating is is just an idea 
It's just a concept of how old age is. And I have known people who have reached old age, and it's not a dissipating, but a crescendo. It's actually a building up. It's a blooming. It can be the climax of life. Not the decrescendo. So these qualities are, well, well, it's an intense situation. We're talking about one-off sort of rare occurrences in life because you only have one set of parents. You only take care of them in their old age once. And when someone has a terminal illness, well, you only take care of them once and things become very intensified. So the, the intensity... It can always go two ways. It can always go either things become very dark and bitter or they can become very loving and very open and you can make amends and you can appreciate what what is there and what's happening. And there are stories of people who have terrible terminal diseases and yet they're able to turn it into extraordinarily positive things so the other side of this scene is there's a man in the town who's sort of the custodian of this he's the groundskeeper of this haunted house this abandoned house And he sees that one of the lights are on one evening. And he thinks, well, it's some damn kids. I'll go up and shoo them away. And what we have here is a reflection of, it's, it's a reversal of Hagrid turning up to Harry's house in that first book. Well, it wasn't his house. It was the place on the island they'd gone to try and get away from all the letters which is basically one world, the muggle world, meeting with the wizarding world. And it's totally different because Hagrid, well, he's innocent, he's friendly, he's kind, he's understanding. And he comes in and even with that warm, loving nature that he's got, There's still so much drama. And here it's the other way around. It's the muggle world coming into the magic world. And it's the dark lord. It's the the most pure evil. It's the worst kind of darkness. The worst kind of devilry from the magic world. It's not just anybody that this groundskeeper is meeting with. And he unlocks the back door and he walks up and he's sneaking up the stairs and he sort of looks in and he wonders for a second, wait, there's something strange going on here. I don't know what's happening. These don't sound like some kids that are just in, in for some mischief. They're not just trying to light some fires and run away or something. And he sort of comes across this scene by looking through a crack in the door or something by and, and he watches Wormtail and Voldemort having sort of conversations and we sort of see 
this conversation from his perspective. And the great big snake goes past him, and he's petrified of this giant snake. Completely unexpected to see a giant snake go past him. And of course the snake then tells Voldemort, there's a man out the fr- outside the front door, he's listening to our conversation. And at that moment, Lord Voldemort turns straight around and kills him. There's no conversation. There's nothing. He kills him straight away. And this is an indication of what we're dealing with. This is an indication of what it means for one world to meet another. And the one that is from that other world, that magic world, is evil. They're dark. And the great epitome of evil is, well, there is no conversation here. There's no apology for trespassing in your house. It's just an instant murder. Cold-blooded murder. And that's a quality that comes up again and again in the Dark Lord. So it's an intense opening of the fourth book. It's a very strange chapter. It's a very obscure sort of scene to look upon. And we also sort of get this feeling like Harry's had it as a dream. And Harry has been there and he's been the one. He, he's also in on this. And this is how it ties back to our main protagonist because we start to see that the dreamscape of Harry is opening up and Harry's inner world and the characters in his life and the characters in his mind, in a manner of speaking, are becoming more real. And they're becoming more dominant and this dreamscape is having more of a weight on his psychology and how he feels and how he thinks things are. So he sort of sees this scene in his dream and he's wondering is it real or is it not and he's quite deeply disturbed by it so we get back to our novel our our main plot and Harry's with the Dursleys and the Weasleys turn up at the Dursley house to pick him up from the Dursleys and take him off and we're starting to see an arc in this scene because in the first book Harry just got a letter in the second book well what did he do in the second book I've forgotten I think in the oh that's right in the second book he had the the car come and take them away was that that one or was that the third one I can't remember Anyway, and then in the, the fourth book, he, the, the third book, he ran away. And then in the fourth book here, well, now it's the Weasley parents actually turning up. And they turn up in the fireplace. They're trying to travel by the fireplace. 
<laughs> and they blast this fireplace apart and it's a big mess and they make this big mess and Mr. Dursley, well, he's had his world shocked again. All the Dursleys are, whoa, every time someone something happens with Harry, it's this big shock. It's this big, uh, what? how could this happen? And all the Weasleys come in and they're like, oh, hello, what, what, what you done? Something wrong with your fireplace? And Harry picks up his gear and he goes. And then there's this moment where Mr. Weasley says, this is very interesting. He says, aren't you going to say goodbye to your uncle and your auntie? Because, of course, family values, the family values for Mr. Weasley, which he's big on, is, well, you're going off to school. You're going to be not seeing your family for a long time. You give him a kiss and you give him a hug. You say, goodbye, Mr. Mister Dursley. Goodbye, Mrs. Dursley. Have a wonderful term and I'll see you again when I come back. That's what he's expecting. And of course, we all know that's not how he feels about them. And Mr. Mr. Dursley's there sort of shocked that this man has turned up in his fireplace, blasted dirt and mess all over his living room, and now he's giving family advice to him. Now he's giving him advice on how he should talk to his good-for-nothing nephew. And it's a very interesting situation. It's a very strange scenario. And in a sense, the meeting of two families, well, that's just the same as two different worlds meeting. So there's a micro parallel there. So we've got the we've got wizard family meets non-wizard family. But even more simply than that, we just have one family meeting another family. And Mr. Weasley's thinking, well, this is how family is. This is how families treat each other. This is how families talk to each other at this time of year. Why shouldn't it be different? Let me let me step up and say something. And of course, we all know the relation Harry has with the Dursleys. He doesn't want anything of it. And one of the Weasley sons, one of the twins, they drop a toffee and something goes wrong with Dudley. He starts growing this massive long tongue or something and everything goes crazy and haywire and they, they make a run for it and they get out of there. And it's very funny. And the, the Weasley mother has this thing of, oh, there's no ambition in those twins. But she doesn't see just yet that there's actually a lot of inventiveness in the twins. And there's a lot of joy, which could be quite profitable later on, as we do find out. So Harry turns up with his friends at the Weasley house, and he's sort of having a good time and meeting with some people. And another one of the Weasley sons is doing a report for the Ministry of Magic and his friends are sort of like, or his younger brothers are like, oh, yeah, sounds really interesting. So we have we have a full variety in this family. We have a good bunch of jokers and we have the serious older, older type and there's a whole different array of personalities within the Weasley family. And we learn about that more and more as this story unfolds. So they go on an outing, Harry and his friends and the Weasley family, and they go to the Quidditch World Cup. And this is great. This is so fantastic. 
going on an outing with someone else's family is so much fun. Harry feels so happy to be doing something in the wizarding world. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's fanfares and there's the how they get there and they meet other people from school and they go up and Harry's just blown away by this person, uh, what is it, Victor Crumb. So he's this, he's the seeker for one of the teams in the Quidditch World Cup and Harry's just electrified by seeing him fly. It's just like, wow. And Harry, it's almost like Harry has talent, but... This guy, Crumb, he's got talent and he's worked for it and he's refined it and he's really been able to do it. And the whole the whole thing of Quidditch, you know, Harry's been playing Quidditch a couple of years now, but he hasn't really ever seen a full professional match like, like the World Cup. And it just shows how much more there is, how much more skill there is to it and how deep, deep there is to it. And and kids have this. Kids always have this with the sports they play. They always look up to those younger, those that look up to those professionals, those superstars. And to them, well, if they're really sensitive to how the sport is, it's like, wow, how they're seeing how impossible it is and how much skill there is. There's a deep appreciation in doing something. Being able to do something yourself at an amateur level and then watching a professional. And I can understand this sort of as an outsider. Because <laughs> when I look at soccer, when I see a soccer match, I, I can't really see the skill. And may, maybe, that's, maybe there is no skill in soccer. I doubt it, though. Let's stick with our first hypothesis, which is that... The skill is there, but I can't see it. So to me, it just looks like, well, they're kicking the ball back and forth. Anybody could do that, and there's not really that much action going on. Whereas if you play soccer, and you do your juggling, and you do your drills, and you have games, and you have your team practice, and all these sorts of things, then how your, your relationship with how you look at the ball moving around the feet and moving from player to player, well, that's very different to how I look at it. And that's what's going on here with Harry watching the World Cup. And there are some other characters too. He's sort of in this top box, finding his seat, and there are these awkward moments because the, the Mal, Malfoy... Mal, I've, I've realised I've been spelling Mal, Malfoy wrong or pronouncing Malfoy. I've been saying Malfoy with a, with a bit of an R instead of a Mal. It's M-A-L-F-O-Y. So there's no R. And I think like some people in certain cultural backgrounds, they mix their L's and their R's. So Malfoy, I'll try and say Malfoy, but I'll probably have the R coming in from a bit of habit anyway. But but anyway, so the, the Malfoys turn up and they're there and Mal, Mr. Malfoy comes out, has just recently given this contribution, this donation to one of the hospitals for magical injuries, which is how he got one of his seats, how he got this really good seat at the World Cup. 
and he sort of, I can't remember, does he sort of walk past the, the Weasleys and he says some sneering comment. And then there's also this interesting elf, his house elf. And this is important for our narrative. Well, well, it's not important for our narrative. It's important for the narrative because the, the elf actually ends up spying on Harry and the Weasleys and the, the, the Harry Potter and his friends, they end up thinking that the information that has come out and been used against them is because the Malfroys were overhearing them, were listening in on their conversation, when really it was this house elf sent by Crouch, Crouch's house elf. Anyway, that this whole scene, it's it's sort of just a, it's sort of an incidental part of our conversation today. So the other part, the other thing that comes up is, well, they go to the World Cup and then there's this thing of the whole dark mark comes out and there's this big drama and the big thing, the whole the whole celebration turns into a riot. And well, <laughs> some soccer matches do turn into a riot. <laughs> and one of the scenes is where there's a bunch of death eaters, which we call the evil evildoers, and they're humiliating this muggle family by putting a magic spell on them, holding them up in the air. And it's a very tense because it shows that there's something, there, there is a lot more danger and the dark side is becoming much more dominant. So this evil side of the magic world is now getting followers and those followers are now getting confident enough to actually step out and be acting straight in the face of everyone else, in the face of security or in the face of the rules. And that's a big step because there's always this thing of, you know, we have society and we say, well, there's right and wrong. We have rules and we all follow by them. And there's this certain stage where someone knows what they're doing is wrong in the eyes of society and they know they can get in trouble and they still sort of do it, but when they do it, they sort of try and cover it up and they try and run away or they think, oh, oh yes, it was wrong, but I should get away. I'm trying to get away with it. How can I get away with it? This sort of attitude. But the next level of that, the more obtuse more confident level of that is the level that we see here with these muggle uh, with these death eaters humiliating this muggle family which is that yes i know the rules yes i know i am breaking the rules but i'm going to do it anyway and i don't care i'm not even going to try and run away from you just watch me do it which is a totally different level of confidence in the dark side. So we can see that something is coming, something is happening.
so the plot continues and and one of the things one of the things i think like when we're reading this book it's like we've started off the book with lord voldemort and then we've gone to the weasley's house and then we've gone to the quidditch world cup and then all this bad stuff has happened there and it's turned into a riot and you you're sort of reading along and you think wow this is we're up to chapter 9 and we haven't even got to Hogwarts yet. We haven't even started school term yet. This is huge. And that's really clever. That's really good writing because it's a it's another layer of the world opening up. It's another part of the broadening of one's perspective. Another step in the coming-of-age story. And it's like, well, Harry has been going to school and he's discovered this magic world, but so far, this magic world has consisted basically just of school. And now, well, things have opened up and there is a whole other world. There is a ministry of magic and we're starting to see some of the characters from the ministry of magic. We're starting to see people from other schools like Victor Crumb, when he's starting to realize that this, there's a whole world out there to discover. There's more and more and even more. And there's another sort of cute little thing that I might segue into now, which I'd like to offer up, offer, give you, if I can put it like that, which is there's this thing which is when they're at the Quidditch World Cup, they have this magic tent and they're, they're sort of camping. And, you know, we've got the Weasley family, which is seven or eight people, something like that, nine people, and Harry and Hermione. So we've got like ten-something people, ten-plus people, and they turn up with the tent and they set up the tent and it's basically the equivalent in the non-magic world of a two-person tent. And Harry's looking at it going like, how are we all going to fit in there? And then he walks in and he's like, whoa, you know, there's a kitchen, there's a dining area, there are bunk beds, there's a bathroom. And he just thinks, wow, it's a magic tent. And that's one of the beautiful things that are in the magical world, one of these beautiful things that put us in that magical world. And I think, wow, that's so cool. That's so cool. And I wonder if I was in that situation, what, what I would do is, well, I would want to, I would want to like stand at the door of the tent and, and see like what, what happens if you're halfway between the two? Like, what do you do with one foot in the tent and one foot out? And you try and look, look at the divide, look at the thing that is, that is there and try and see how it, you know, where, 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 you know, I'm sort of feeling like, oh, there's something back and forth happening there. And what I wanted to segue into was, well, you can actually do this. And I don't know if this is the right place. Maybe... This sort of ties in with one of the other characters. So let me... Well, well, we've brought it up now, so let me, let me bring it up now. And 
We'll tie this in with Mad-Eye Moody. So we're not going in chronological order at this moment. We're jumping ahead and back a bit. But let's, let's move forward to where Harry goes to school and he meets this new teacher, Mad-Eye Moody. And Mad-Eye Moody has this eyeball, which is looking around at all different areas. And he can see certain things, and it's not exactly clear what he can see with that eye. And we get the impression that he's actually worked on it. He's actually done certain spells, he's done certain research, he might have done certain potions, certain charms, and he's made this eye into something that he can use. And it's unique to him, it's sort of an original piece of magic that he's got. And this ties in with the tent at the Quidditch World Cup being big on the inside and normal on the outside because it it actually brings up this technique where you can actually make a mad eye. You can make your eye into a mad eye moody. And here's how you do it. You actually need to have... A door. What? So basically, now, now listen really carefully. Here, and I know I'm fumbling a bit because I'm not entirely sure in which order. What's what's happening now is what order in in to explain this. And I can't decide what order to explain it in because there's so much to explain. <laughs> I just want to tell you everything at once. I just want you to know everything at once. So. Listen carefully. I'm going to give you this technique. Now, believe me. Now, this might sound crazy, but you can become a mad eye moody. You can build your own magic eye. Like, literally. I'm talking literally. And you won't get this anywhere else. And I, there's this part of me coming up now which says, I should be charging you money for this information, giving it away for free. So listen up, listen carefully. Let's get into this. And I'll explain it all to you with the right timing, when the time is right, and you can piece it into any order you wish you want. So here we go. This is the technique. You get a book and you put it on your nose. You put it between your eyes. And what you're doing when you do that is you're isolating your eyes. You're dividing them up because normally your eyes work together. And what you do is you practice by looking out one of the eyes and you look around and you see what you can see and then you look out the other eye. And you don't... Now, the other way to do this is why don't you cover the eye? Why don't you cover the eye that you're not looking out of? And actually, well, in this technique, you don't do that. You still want both eyes to be open and looking. And you can do that with a book. And that's one way of doing it. And the other way of doing it, and this is probably more effective, but your parents might give you a funny look if they see you doing this. You can just, if if anyone sees you doing this, just say, I'm learning how to be mad-eye moody. <laughs> It might be it might be more believable than <laughs> I'm doing a consciousness technique. <laughs> so the other way is you do it by what I would do with the tent at the 
Quidditch World Cup, which is instead of using a book, you use a door. And you angle the door of your room. You can do it on the door of your bedroom or in your house or your back door or something. And you angle it. If it's a sliding door, well, it could still work with a sliding door. But you angle it so that one eye is looking around the inside of the house or that the bedroom. And then the other eye is looking around the outside. And you keep the door right up against your nose. I'm sort of... Uh, the, the reason I'm making sounds on the microphone now is because I'm doing it with a book. And you practice looking out each eye. And you have to, you have to try and balance it. So you spend... A little bit of time looking out your left eye. And remember to keep your right eye open because your right eye is, is trying to look there also, but it's being stopped. You're confusing it. You're stopping it. You're isolating it. And you want to do that with it. You, you have to keep it open. Now, there are consciousness techniques which work with closing the eyes, but in this one, we keep them open. And then once you've done the left eye for some time, you look at the right eye. And you just look around. What do you see? You can see a lamp. You can see some curtains, the bookshelf, some furniture. What does the wall color look like? And this works best if the two rooms are very different. So if you can do it with the lounge room and outside... And that's ideal because outside is more different to inside. Anything that's inside to outside. And of course, well, I would say if you've got a tent where the inside is really big and it's got bunk beds and on the outside it's just a small tent, well, then I would stand in that doorway and that would do this and I would do this. And this takes practice. Like I get the impression Mad-Eye Moody has had to do research and really build up his magic eye. It's been uh, something that is, it, it, it takes time. It pr takes practice. So we practice this technique by saying, well, you can do, you could set a timer. You could say one minute out the left eye and then one minute out the right eye. And you have to go back and forth, back and forth. And you have to do it for some time. You have to do it. You have to really take some practice to do it. it. It's a subtle thing. And if you have no meditative practice and you've done no consciousness techniques at all, whatever, before, then it's going to take a lot of practice. You'll feel the effect. You'll notice something. But it will really take a lot of practice. And now what's the effect? Well, look at what Mad Eye does. He looks around and he looks sometimes with his mad eye and sometimes with his other eye. Now, what we're achieving is not independent movement of the eyeballs. That's something very different. What we're achieving is when you look at someone through one eye or through the other. And that is a difference that you can learn to notice. Let me look at you with my right eye. Let me look at you with my left eye. Now let me look at you with both eyes. 
and that those three things, left eye, right eye, both eyes, become clearly differentiated. And they become very obvious when you do this technique with the book between the eyes, or ideally, the back door of your house. And seeing more broadly, like seeing is, your sight will change. The things you will notice will change. How you observe, how you sense through the eyes will change if you practice this technique. And you will, in some ways, start to see more, quite literally, in the same way that mad eye sees things that we don't because he's built up this magical eye. So that's probably... There's still so much more to get through, but I think we'll save that for next episode, because this has already gone on quite long. And I think this consciousness, consciousness technique is a good thing to leave you with, and and really, really experiment with it and take it quite seriously because these consciousness techniques, they're quite hard to come by and realizing the significance of them. You would never get this by reading Harry Potter. You would never get this explicitly from seeing a character like Mad-Eye Moody. And it's it's astonishing when you really learn these tricks. It's astonishing to realize that Mad-Eye Moody is an actual, per- like a real-life person. Like, pe- there, there are people like this. Literally, there are people like this. And it's so exciting. It's so wonderful. So I think that's where we can leave it for today. So... As always, we can just sit down quietly for a few minutes and just sit silently. And that's all I have to say for now.